Welcome to the Stonelaw Church Podcast. I'm Neil Watson. And whether you are a regular worshipper with us, or whether you just listen to this podcast, I pray that the, the words of the message would be a real blessing to you, and that it would bring you closer to God as you experience more of the love of Jesus in your life. That's, yeah, that's us now, definitely. Uh, yeah, it's good to see you all. Thanks very much for the invitation to be with you again. I think it was maybe uh, four years ago, I think, the last time I was here, so some of you might remember that. Um, but thanks very much for your welcome. Uh, thanks to Neil, and thanks as well to Margaret for um, the work that she does in the church here, uh, keeping people informed about Release International and really encouraging you to pray for persecuted Christians across the world. We very much appreciate that. And we're so thankful as well that you are taking this retiring offering next week for uh, the work of Release International. Thanks so much for doing that here at Stonemore. So we're going to look at this Psalm uh, 56 together um, this morning. Uh, and as we do that, I'm going to share a little bit about some of the work that we are involved in in different parts of the world and some of the people that we are helping to support through that. So we've already had the Psalm read to us very well um, this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll start to look at it. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. And Lord, as we consider what you would say to us this morning through this psalm written maybe 3,000 years ago, we will realize just how relevant it is for our lives and for our world today. So guide us by your Spirit as we consider this now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know if you are um, familiar or fans of, of the Avengers uh, superhero movies at all. Um, it's not really something I'm massively into, but I have watched a few of the, the films recently with my son. Um, and what I find is really interesting about all of these superhero characters is that for all the strengths and superhuman powers that they have, all of them tend to have some kind of issue some kind of weakness, some kind of fear, some kind of character flaw. Um, and as you go through the series of the films, you capture a little bit of that story. So maybe you see a little bit of their history, their backstory. Maybe you see a dilemma that they are facing in the present. And that's the thing that kind of draws out this flaw or fear or, or whatever it is. And it's kind of ironic, I think, but it seems to be that in order to create a convincing superhero, some kind of flaw or fear needs to be part of their personality or their story. Because if they were perfect, then there wouldn't be much of a storyline. And crucially, there wouldn't be that opportunity that we have as watchers to identify with them in that weakness and in that flaw. That's the thing that pulls us into their story. You could say that in the Old Testament, King David was a bit of a superhero. Um, he was the man after God's own heart. He became the king that his predecessor Saul never could be. He defeated his enemies. He delivered peace and prosperity. He united his people. He started a dynasty, and he became the, the symbol of glory for Israel's future generations. He was a bit of a superhero. But as we know, David also had his issues. 
And when you dig into his backstory in the book of 1 Samuel, and when you peer into his emotional life through the Psalms, you see that despite all his strengths and victories, David also had some real vulnerability that he had to work through. And we see this in, in Psalm 56, verse 3, I think, sums it up very well. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. The great King David had fear, real fear. But crucially, he found a way to move through that fear so that he was able to stake his trust in God. So much so that twice in this psalm, he can say, I shall not be afraid. When I am afraid, I shall not be afraid. And of course, fear is something that all of us have to face at one point or another in our lives and often repeatedly in our lives, whether that's a fear of illness, fear of what the scan might show, whether that's fear of rising bills, we know about that just now, fear of war and global unrest, again, something that's very familiar to us, fear that someone that we trust might let us down, a friend or a family member, fear that we won't be good enough in whichever area of our life we're worried about. Fear of what tomorrow might bring or might not bring. And persecuted Christians experience real fear in their varied circumstances too. So that might be believers in villages in northern Nigeria who are under the constant threat of attack because of their identity as Christians. Or it might be believers in Iranian house churches who maybe even today are meeting together, but are fearful that the police might burst through the door at any moment and take them off for interrogation. So for the next few minutes, we're going to look at this psalm in a bit more detail, and we're going to think about how David wrestled between fear on the one hand and trust on the other hand. And hopefully as we do that, we'll get a better understanding of how we can cope with the fears that we face in our lives and also better appreciate the circumstances of our persecuted Christian family. So first of all then, let's look at David's fear. Uh, this psalm is one of the few psalms that give us a definite historical context in the life of David. So if you look at the heading in your Bible, it says, A Mictum of David, a song of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And as I said before, the background to that story is found in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 21. Um, David, who has been nothing but loyal to King Saul, um, finds that Saul uh, doesn't repay that loyalty, but has actually become paranoid and jealous and has threatened to kill David. So David is forced to run away and he flees into the enemy territory of the Philistines and he ends up being brought before their king, Achish. And he's not particularly happy that David is now on his patch. So for David, it kind of seems like his world is turning upside down and he's running out of ideas of how to save himself. And this psalm is really a reflection on that concrete experience in his life. And so look at the way that he describes the situation in verses 1 to 2. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long 
in their pride, many are attacking me. So, this is a picture of someone who has been chased. The attackers are, are hot on his heels. The pursuit is relentless, and it's coming from just about every direction. There is a, a sense that David has been overwhelmed by this pursuit. In our current um, Voice magazine, you can pick up copies of that later at the end from the table across there, um, there's an article where we share the story of Early Rain Covenant Church in China. So this church used to run a Bible school, it used to run a primary school, and they had around 800 people in their weekly meetings, so it was a big church. But then in 2018, uh, the Communist Party authorities raided the church, they arrested the pastor Wang Yi, along with around 100 members of the congregation. That's a picture of the pastor there. Sorry, can we go back one? There we go. Um, and since then, Pastor Wang Yi um, has been sentenced to nine years in prison. He's currently serving that sentence. And since his conviction, his family have been constantly harassed and monitored to the extent where they've had CCTV cameras installed in the bathroom in their apartment. They've been forbidden from contacting other members of the church, and the pastor's son has been withdrawn from the school he was in and placed in another one uh, and is finding life very difficult. The other leaders in the church have also been under various levels of surveillance, and some of them have been detained multiple times. The church had tried to continue to meet online, as some of you are doing here this morning, but then the government banned online religious services, so they couldn't do that anymore, and now um, they are trying to meet discreetly in small groups in people's houses. But if the police discover where they're meeting, then they put pressure on the landlords to evict the Christians from their homes. So this church is under real pressure. They are being pursued and harassed in a similar way to David was, and it's a, a common story for the unregistered house churches in China. Well, in verses 3 to 4 of the psalm, as we move on, David starts to break out of this despair that we're shown in verses 1 to 2. But before we go on to think about that, it's quite interesting uh, to notice that the psalm has two kind of very similar movements. So verses 1 to 2 describe the distress and circumstances, and then verses 3 to 4 are a statement of trust. But then verses 5 to 7 circle back round to the distress and circumstances again before we get to verses 8, and 11, 8 to 11, which reiterate the statement of trust. And I think that shows us something um, about fear, that it's not easy to overcome, especially when the things that cause that fear are constantly in the background. We might find a place of trust, but then we find the fear overwhelms us again, and we move between these two things. So again, let's look at verses 5 to 6 and find a little bit of further insight into the opposition that David is facing. I think you're going to have to help me in the back here. It seems to have given up. Here we go. Verses 5 to 6. All day long they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire. They lurk. They watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Again, you have this refrain, all day long. It's constant. There's been no let up. And here the emphasis is on the troubles that David's enemies want to cause for him. 
So they spend time plotting against him. They want to sabotage his plans. They stir up other people against him. They follow him in the shadows looking for an opportunity to pounce on him. And ultimately, it is their intention to destroy him. They want to take his life. Next slide there. Um, it's now five and a half years since this pastor, Malaysian pastor Raymond Coe, was abducted. Uh, Raymond was involved in reaching out to the poor and marginalized in his community in Malaysia, but that wasn't popular with everyone. And he started to receive death threats, including a box of bullets in the post one day. And then back in February 2017, he left his house one day to run an errand and blacked out vehicles surrounded his car. Several men jumped out and they bundled Raymond into one of those vehicles and he's never been seen again since. We actually interviewed Raymond's wife, I think it was last year, his wife Susanna on our podcast. You can listen to that on our website for some more detail on his particular story. They were out to get Raymond in the same way that these people in this psalm were out to get David. And it's no wonder then that David admits in verse 3 that he's afraid. Who wouldn't be afraid in these circumstances? Fear is such a real visceral. Um, yeah, so we're thinking about fear. Fear is a real visceral human emotion. Um, we get scared in scary circumstances. And that is not something to be embarrassed about. And it's not a black mark on our faith either. David was legitimately scared here. In the same way, persecuted Christians today are legitimately scared in their difficult circumstances. And like we said earlier, I'm sure everyone here knows what it is to experience fear in your life. But the question is, what do you do with that fear? How do you handle that core emotion when it surfaces inside you? And how do we regulate what that fear does to us? Well, that brings us to the second point that we're going to look at. Look at what David says in verses 3 to 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So notice here that David makes an intentional commitment to trust. That primary emotion of fear is washed over him, and he has a choice about how he's going to respond. He could panic and stop himself from being able to think clearly. He could catastrophize and let all the worst-case scenarios flood through his mind. He could just freeze like a rabbit in the headlights and be paralyzed and incapable of any kind of action. And those are different ways that we do respond to fear. But David makes this commitment to do something different here. He chooses intentionally to trust in God. And this is not some kind of like whimsical notion of a God up there somewhere. It's not a kind of hope in the dark, a hope for the best. This is a trust that is rooted in something very substantial. See how he puts it at the start of verse 4? His trust is in God, whose word I praise. So David's trust is based 
on the substantial foundation of God's Word. And that, of course, means in this uh, context, the Old Testament Scriptures, the Torah, the story of God proving Himself to His people over and over again in history, being faithful to those promises that He made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So, it's a reference to the Scriptures, but God's Word here is also a reference to the idea that what He says is effective. So, in other words, when God speaks, things happen. He never lies. He never fails to deliver. He is always as good as His Word. Then we move on to verses 7 to 9, and we see how this develops. We get a little bit more insight into the character of the God whose Word David trusts. Verse 7, he shows his confidence in the justice of God. He asks God not to turn a blind eye to the wrong that is done against him, against innocent people. It's not David's business to go looking for revenge. He's not supposed to take it into his own hands. But he believes that God will hold his enemies to account because he's a just God. And so he can ask him for justice. In verse 8, David is also confident about the attentive compassion of God. Um, The translation of the word misery here is debated. I think in the version we read, it was the word tossings. um, And that could mean either wanderings, um, in which case it's related uh, to David's movements when he was on the run from Saul. But it could also mean something more like shaking. The shaking that might be connected with David's tears in the next part of the verse. I wonder if you've ever been in such a place that grief affects your whole body, that you literally shake as you cry. David says that God sees this, and he's so attentive to it that he keeps a written record of it. Every one of those shakes is counted. Every one of those tears is caught and stored. This is an intimate picture. Your fear, your pain, your agony is never forgotten by God. It's never played down. It's acknowledged and remembered. He is an attentive, compassionate God. And then David sums up in verse 9, by this I will know that God is for me. Or again, according to another translation that we read, I know this, that God is for me. When bad things happen to us, there is a temptation to doubt God. You know, this um, illness, this, this loss, this rejection has happened to me. Does that mean that God is against me? And it's that basic question that comes up time and time again in people's objections to Christianity. If there's a God, then why is there suffering in the world? Why is there all this pain and trauma? And very often that question that's presented in philosophical terms actually comes to people's minds because they've experienced some real personal pain in their lives that they're struggling with. And when Christians face opposition and they know that they've not done anything wrong, they're entirely innocent, then the hatred they're facing 
it makes that question even harder. Why this opposition? Why this persecution? I've been faithful. Well, in those moments, we need to wrestle our own particular circumstances into the picture, the bigger context of the God we know. The God whose word is effective and sure. The God who is just. The God who is compassionate. The God who is for me. A lady called Abru, unfortunately I can't show you her picture, but this lady called Abru um, came to faith in, Pakistan, in, in Afghanistan in 2015. Um, and almost immediately uh, she faced opposition from her husband and from her siblings because of her new faith. They put pressure on her to reject Jesus and it was difficult for her. And a while after that, her husband died and even although he had opposed her faith, that was still a really difficult thing for her to go through. And she said this, I thought, my family is finished, my life is over. But the peace of Jesus was marvelous. There were many difficulties, especially when I had to take my children and leave home. No one gave me anywhere to live for two years, and I couldn't get my children admitted to school. It was a hard time but the Holy Spirit was my strength. I was rejoicing in my faith in Jesus. That was my strength. My life was like a boat in a storm, like with the disciples in the boat when Jesus rebukes the storm. Jesus was rebuking every storm in my life. When I read scripture, I feel strength in my soul and body. My faith is big, and I believe my God is big. Amazing testimony. Well, the last two verses of the psalm are really a conclusion and kind of like a restatement of the trust that David has discovered. Verse 13 it seems to be written from the perspective of the future. So in other words, David is so confident about the fact that God is going to deliver him that he can write about it as if it's already happened. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. As with every other part of the Old Testament, there is an important New Testament angle that we have to bring to bear on this psalm. There are many times throughout David's story where we see the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus, almost prefigured, if you like, and that's not only in David's victories and his prestige, it's also in these difficulties and these sufferings. If you think about the life of Jesus, he too was hounded by enemies. The Pharisees who constantly tried to trap him, the temple authorities who tried to silence him, the Roman power who finally executed him. And like David, he experienced the trauma that comes with that kind of relentless attack. Doesn't verse 8 of this psalm, the tears, does that not remind you of Gethsemane? Luke says that Jesus prayed in agony and his sweat was like drops of blood. Jesus must have experienced fear, human fear. But in that 
um, emotion. Jesus becomes for us the absolute exemplar, if you like, of verse 3. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Remember what he prayed in Gethsemane in the agony? He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. In 1 Peter 2, verse 23, the Apostle Peter says this, When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And like David, Jesus believed that his vindication would ultimately come. No matter what evil people threw at him, he knew that he'd see life even if it meant having to go through death. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. So Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of David's move towards trust in this psalm. And this New Testament angle is the thing that helps us to make sense of the last verse of the psalm. Because we look out on the world and we see Christians who not only suffer because of their faith, but some of them actually die. They're killed because of their faith. They don't seem to see the light of life. Does that mean that God's let them down? Well, no. Because in Jesus, God has defeated even death. And all of Jesus' followers are caught up in that victory. Even death cannot defeat them. Twice in this psalm, David says, what can mere mortals do to me? What can man do to me? And when we read the psalm, we're tempted to say, well, actually, David, they can do quite a lot to you. They can hound you. They can chase you. They can trample you, attack you, injure you, stir people up against you, trap you, try and kill you. There's quite a lot of things that people can do to you, David. But of course, it's a rhetorical question. And the answer is obviously meant to be, well, not that much. Because in comparison to the eternal protection that God offers his people, there is not that much that mere mortals can do. Sorry, the one before there. My colleagues recently met a lady called Lula, um, who our partners have been supporting in, in East Africa. And she had to leave her family after becoming a Christian. Her father said publicly, I'm not afraid of going to jail. If people see her, kill her. Imagine your own father saying that. So she had to flee to another country, but her brothers followed her there. Um, and she had to hide out for months in a house without leaving it, constantly fearing that she would be caught. But then she was praying one day and she felt the Lord asking her how long she was going to be afraid of human beings. So she got up and decided to leave the house. She went out into the market area and she met one of her brothers and he threatened to kill her. But she told him that she would scream if he tried anything and she walked away unharmed from that situation and on that day she was able to testify that God had delivered her from fear of human beings after that happened 
Rula's family continued uh, to pursue her, and one day she returned home to find that her house had been demolished and all her belongings had been stolen. But despite this ongoing um, attack against her, God has enabled her to love her family, and she continues to try and reach out to them. She even went to her father's funeral when he died, despite the risks uh, that she faced because of that. And then one more story. This man um, is a pastor in India. One day he got on board a crowded train with a rucksack full of Bibles. Um, He was on his way to a meeting in in a part of India to distribute these Bibles. But on the train, the zip on his bag burst and some of the Bibles fell out um, onto the floor. And on the train, there were some young Hindu nationalists who were very upset by the sight of these Bibles, and they began to shout angrily at the pastor. And there was a bit of a ruckus, and they actually threw him off the moving train, and he fractured his skull, he broke his shoulder and his ankle, and he lost several teeth in the process. So how did that pastor respond, we might ask? Well, first he thanked God. He said, the Lord saved my life. My Lord was with me. He's the reason I'm alive now. And second, as soon as he was able to, he got back to work, pastoring in several villages and giving out Bibles. And he said this, many people are coming to church and they are afraid, but when you give your life to the Lord, he is with you. So as we sum up, here is two simple challenges to leave with you. First one is this, make sure that you get the story of God's justice and compassion and his absolute commitment to fulfilling his word in your life embedded into your soul at the deepest level. He is for you. And that is the thing that will be able to set your fears in context and drive fear backwards whenever it feels like it's going to overwhelm you. And then the second thing, every time you experience fear in your own life, stop for a moment and think about your persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's your chance to identify with them in some small way. We might not experience anything like some of the stories we've heard this morning, but it is a small chance for identification with them. And when we do that, we'll be in a better position to know how to pray for them, and how to support them. If you're not um, already in contact with Release, then, sorry, can we move on to the next slide? Well, it's a picture of the magazine. I'll give it away. And there's plenty of copies of the magazine over there, so please do come up and uh, come by later after we've finished and pick up a copy of that. You can sign up to receive it regularly. I know Margaret gives some of them out, but if you want to get that directly so that you can have the prayer diary in front of you every day, then uh, please do uh, come and, and look at that. There's also lots of information available on our website, so take a look at that as well um, after the service. And then one final thing, if we can have the last slide up there, yeah, the next one. Next one. That's it. One final thing to let you know about, um, it's always very powerful when we hear the first person voice. So I've been to some of these places that I was sharing about this morning, and I can share my experiences of that. 
but it's even more powerful to hear the first person voice of persecuted Christians. And we have an event on Tuesday the 4th of October in Hamilton Baptist Church with our partner Bob Fu from China Aid. Uh, and he'll be speaking about the current situation in China, the increased oppression that the church is facing there. He's an amazing individual who has himself spent time in Chinese prisons because of his faith. So if you're available on that night, Tuesday the 4th of October, please do uh, come along to that. Let me pray quickly. Father God, as we prayed at the start, we see that this poem, this song that was written 3,000 years ago is so relevant to us because we all know what it means to be afraid. Lord, as we think about that this morning, as we process it, we pray that that statement of David would be true in our own lives for every one of us, that we can say, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. And Lord, we pray that for our persecuted brothers and sisters this morning, some of the people we've heard about, Lula, Abru, the pastor in India, the church in China, who are all afraid because of the circumstances they're in. But they are people who are such a strong example to us because they've found a way to move through their fear to dependence and trust in you. Help us, Lord, to follow their example. In Jesus' name. Amen.